0: I view surgery as a ceremony. Surgery is an opportunity to undergo a major transformation of the mind and body. And historically, I think that's really what the process of medicine and and surgery was.
1: Are you ready to boost your longevity and unlock peak performance? Welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Claudia Famburzelaga, Longevity and Peak Performance Coach. Each week, we'll explore groundbreaking science, unravel longevity secrets, share strategies to grow younger, and stay up to date with world-class health and peak performance pioneers. Everything you need to live longer, live better, and reach your fullest potential. Ready to defy aging, optimize health, and promote peak Performance, visit llinsider.com for more. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan Kanefsky, a highly trained plastic surgeon from New York. Dr. John completed his undergraduate degree and medical degree at McGill University, graduating at the top of his class. He was accepted into the competitive integrative plastic surgery residency at McGill University and became certified by the prestigious Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Dr. John is considered a leader in the field of artificial intelligence in medicine and he is bringing the latest cutting-edge technology to plastic surgery. Dr. John puts the patient's needs first and we'll get into this in our conversation today and how many lives I guess he's saved of women from breast implant illness. Outside the operating room, Dr. John has been active in humanitarian work, volunteering on medical missions in Guatemala, raising awareness for animal and wildlife conservations and fundraising for the Montreal Children's Hospital Division of Craniofacial Surgery. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle Podcast, Dr. John. It's such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank
0: you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So Dr. John, I'd like to start with something that's very important, um, and it's breast implant illness. So for my audience listening, um, either perhaps they have breast implants or there might be some considering it, you know, what exactly is this breast implant illness? How many people does it affect each year? And how can it be avoided, prevented, and treated?
0: So breast implant illness has uh, become a really um, pressing women's health topic uh, in the past, I'd say, five to seven years. Um, The issue with implants has actually been around for a long time. So uh, maybe I could just start by telling you about my own sort of personal experience and history with implants as a a plastic surgeon. And then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the details about breast implants. So um, about six, seven years ago, when I was nearing the end of my um, uh, aesthetics fellowship training, I started to notice more and more discussion among patients. I'd have patients coming in and, and sharing this concern that you know I think my implants are making me sick. And at that time, the um, the general consensus in the plastic surgery industry in the world was that you know this is this this has been disproven in the past, and there's not really a thing here and um, very, very unfortunately, it it seemed like the rhetoric was put more on the side of you know the the patients, not uh, rather than like a, a real um, assessment and understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Since then, um, there's been you know a complete um, uh, reversal in terms of uh, the depth and understanding with which I think the industry is starting to look at these issues. Unfortunately, not as much as I would hope, Um, but at that point, for me and my training and where I was at, I decided I'm not going to do any breast implant surgery until it's 100% clear. There's no 100% guarantees in medicine, but um, at that that point, I was like, there's there's enough patients coming in complaining of this being a problem, and I can't accurately predict who's going to develop breast implant illness Mm -hmm. or these symptoms, so I'd rather just not be involved with them. Mm -hmm. so what is, what is breast implant illness? So breast implant illness is a constellation of symptoms that um, really fit in what m- most people in the medical profession would categorize as sort of the autoimmune category of symptoms. So the long list of symptoms, I may not get all of them, but in my practice, what I tend to see often is things like chronic fatigue, joint pain, hair loss, dry mouth, um, loss of hair, um, there's also disturbances in mood, sometimes gut issues. So it really is touching on a large number of organ systems.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, part of the challenge is that because it's such a broad definition of symptoms that it's not necessarily falling into the category of like an easily identifiable illness. There's no blood test at the moment that we know that you can take that will say, yes, you have breast implant illness. Mm-hmm. And who hasn't, at some point in their life, felt either a bit of fatigue or joint pain or yeah. hair loss? You know, and so um, it it does make it challenging to consider this. Um, but what we know so far about breast implant illness and what silicone does in the body, um, and this is not a new thing, by the way. It may have um, changed names and become more common, but if you look at the arc and the history of breast implants in um, throughout the plastic surgery industry. This was a big deal in the 90s. In fact, there was a moratorium, meaning a complete stop on breast implants um, in the 90s. So uh, breast implants have this a bit of a controversial, contentious history already in the past. Mm-hmm. At that time, breast implants were um, identified or, or thought to be associated with autoimmune illness. There was a syndrome called ASIA. So um, within, uh, basically, uh, a constellation of symptoms associated to silicone toxicity. Which, um, in my mind, Asia and breast implants are are actually in the same. They're kind of cousins. They're in the same category. So it's it's the body's reaction to silicone. Mm -hmm. Um, So what silicone does in the body is that for some people, not everybody, silicone is technically inert. But for some people, when the immune system sees silicone, the white blood cells they create a reaction around it that forms a capsule. Um, it's what the body does for any kind of foreign foreign body. Um, it, it'll it'll create a capsule in it. But the silicone acts as something we call an adjuvant. Um, an adjuvant is something that basically primes or accelerates the immune system's response. Now, many things in the body can act as an adjuvant. Some vaccines have adjuvants, um, but for a specific subset of people, we can't accurately predict who. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some we have some theories. Um, I have some of my own personal theories, but for some people. Who have a predisposition to autoimmune illness. So that means if you have a lot of allergies, if you have known autoimmune conditions, um, hypersensitivities, it is more likely that having silicone implanted in your body is going to take your immune system from this base, baseline threshold of reactivity
1: mm-hmm. and
0: put it into overdrive, mm-hmm. which is then going to cause this flurry of autoimmune reactions, overproduction of antibodies immune cells and it's just going to put your body in a state of constant inflammation um this this topic was particularly interesting to me um from from the medical standpoint because my my background was uh, in immunology before i went into medicine so i started looking at the literature and saying this is there is no way that this is just a random occurrence there, there's that saying in medicine like one one time thing is maybe just a, a random two is starting to be a pattern three or more there's definitely something to look at and, and i was seeing patient after patient um, so it really, it really touched me. And I said, I'm I'm just going to step away from this for now and focus on alternatives and, um, and helping patients through the process where clearly I think the industry has not done a good job of supporting
1: women. How soon are you seeing patients starting to notice symptoms? So maybe somebody who's listening is like, oh, like last year, two years, five years ago, eight years ago. I've had breast implants and maybe it was, you know, at age 40, 45, 50. So sort of perimenopausal, menopausal, Mm. you know, who doesn't have gut health issues like so many people do, right? right? So it's hard, like the symptoms you're describing could tick the box. Lyme disease even so, (laughs) like to feel those boxes as well, right? So. That's part of part of the, the tricky part about the not having a proper, like one diagnosis, right? If there's inflammation in the body, it could be from different sources. But I think if someone knows, okay, yes, they have silicone Im- implanted in the body, right? So through, through the implants, how soon after do patients typically notice symptoms? I guess is is the first question that I just wanted to dig in there.
0: Mm. it's really been a range um and i think there is a really strong component to this that is not just the body and and the physiology and this is what i would consider maybe more of a psycho-spiritual aspect which i think is very important which is how people view their body and 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 the connection between the nervous system and and, um and and the mind Mm -hmm. um but to give you the range, I've, I've had patients come to me and say, as, um, immediately after the surgery, within the first week, I felt something was off. I started to feel itchiness in my eyes and, and my skin felt uncomfortable. I would mm-hmm. say that's definitely the exception. More often after about a year or so, um, mm-hmm. six months to a year, which makes sense physiologically, because what's happening is over time, the body's creating this capsule around the implant. Mm-hmm. And some people believe, and you know, this has been, um, if the literature is contentious. It's been proven and disproven. So- that, Basically, I don't know where the truth lies, but the physiology says that it takes um, it takes several months for this capsule to form around the implant. And it's the body's reaction, the body's fighting at that capsule, um, that shell, which is what's creating some of the immunological response. Mm-hmm. Uh, on average, I would say it's somewhere within the six months to a year range. Mm-hmm. Now, um, many people, I'd say probably the majority of women with breast implants don't aren't, aren't thinking about symptoms or, or don't have them. On average, it's about 35 to 40% of patients that's what's been reported in the literature which is still very high but that's it's, a it's lot, not a majority that's a, that's, that's a big number especially especially if you think about up until last year for the very first time well up until last year breast implant surgery was the most common plastic surgery procedure over 100,000 procedures done a year i mean that's insane to think um there's 30,000 patients a year um otherwise avoidable and and there's there's just so many little tabs I could to talk about this in terms of like how is the informed consent process done? Why, why aren't women being informed of these black box warnings on implants? You know, what are the alternatives that were discussed? But um
1: We're gonna dig into but, all of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would say on average
0: about a year, but I have I have had patients tell me, you know, oh, within the first week they felt something was off. And it's, and it's possible. I mean, there's this foreign body that's inside your body's interacting yeah. with it, and especially if you're predisposed to have an autoimmune response. Most people don't know
1: if they have, right. Unless they've already been diagnosed, they don't, they don't necessarily know. Um, but is that fair to say?
0: That's true. They, they wouldn't know. And, and, you know, unless, unless you have a, a strong family history of it or for whatever reason, um, you know, the, the, the threshold to, to show up with autoimmune systems, you, you just wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in my experience before I knew the stats and before this is more of a thing, I was like, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of patients are are likely to have a predisposition to an autoimmune condition and should avoid this. And I would screen patients. This is back when I did implants. I no longer do them. Mm -hmm. I would ask patients, I would say, do you have any, you know, allergies or uh, hypersensitivities, any family history of autoimmune conditions? And I would say, you know, I I think there's this link, I don't know for for sure, but
1: But, uh, I found it it a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I found it a lot easier now just to, just to step away from it completely. And now I solely focus on eggplant surgery and then just doing the alternative, which is I think safer, which is backcrafting.
1: Yep. So we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. And I yeah. have a question and a concern because I am wearing a silicone strap on my Apple watch. Mm-hmm. So for those watching, you can see that I'm pointing to my Apple yeah. watch. But Is there studies or have you seen research around silicone against the skin externally versus implants internally?
0: I have not. So I don't want to speak with uh, like 100% authority. but, But what I know about the biology of the skin is that silicone is inert and your skin is a very, very effective protective barrier. Like our skin is essentially, it's like more or less waterproof if you think about it. So you have this really thick, durable layer of keratin on top of the skin, which is just dead skin cells. Yeah. And they have their oils; it gets secreted, and then layers, layers deep. Um, so it's the the silicone that would be um, on something like a strap or a watch or something making contact with the skin is nowhere nearly as exposed to the immune system as something that's literally within inside your body at body temperature, potentially shedding off little particles of silicone into the bloodstream. It's like two totally, too totally different okay. things. So I, I personally wouldn't wouldn't worry about it. Um, But I I, I have not personally looked at any literature that like examines the difference, but I I would say it's, it's pretty, pretty low.
1: And now a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you so much for your support as it helps keep our content free for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Prolon. If you want the health benefits of fasting, such as healthy aging, weight loss, energy, and mental clarity, while still being able to eat, Prolon's fasting mimicking nutrition products are for you. Prolon is the first and only clinically tested doctor-recommended fasting nutrition program based on over 20 years of research and developed by the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California in collaboration with 17 other prestigious universities. I'm a fan of the Prolon five-day fasting nutrition program. It's by primarily plant-based, non-GMO food, is shown to rejuvenate your body's cells the same way fasting would. And if done three times per year, can reverse your biological age by 2.5 years. Check out Prolon's five-day fasting nutrition program and subscribe to do the program every four months for the best results by going to prolonlife.com. That's P-R-O-L-O-N-L-I-F-E.com. And for you, dear audience, get 20% off with code claudia 20 at checkout today. And now back to the show. Okay, good. No, I mean this is the great thing about having these fantastic conversations with experts. Yeah. I love so much myself. I had one week where I was learning about Hashimoto's, and he's like seventy percent of women, particularly who are hypo uh, have hypothyroidism, which I do have Hashimoto antibodies. So mm-hmm. I went and got myself tested, and the antibodies are present. I was like, okay, talking to another um, biological dentist. He's like, any metal in the mouth, and I'm like, oh, I don't have any mm-hmm. metal fillings, but <laughs> lo and behold, I have a metal wire. Behind, so I'm like an antenna. I'm like, ah, oh, another thing I need yeah, to do. So yeah, One learns along the way, <laughs> but yeah,
0: okay. and, and and it might be the kind of you know, there's a saying. There was a famous, I think, was a chemist or something, Paracelsus from the 1500s, and he said it's the dose that makes the poison. And mm. it could be the case for a lot of the implants of both foreign material on the body, because for example, you know, there's many many people walking around with orthopedic implants from um, from bone uh, for for knee replacements things like that. And those yes. parts, some of them have silicone and other things in them. Uh, people who have pacemakers or wires some of those leads are covered in silicone so it could just be a question of well um you know the amount of silicone or the amount of the product that could be stimulating a response the problem is it's so variable and it's actually hard to test and control for these things yeah um so so we may never know the for sure for sure the answer but it's just the the signal is important and the signals out there
1: yeah so so let's talk about what you were tapping on there before as well that like why is this not more publicly said? I mean, you were saying that reported cases, if I got the numbers right, 45, uh, sorry, 35 to 40%. And those are reported cases. So the amount that are maybe unreported. So maybe we're looking at about 50% of cases. So you've got a one in two chance of developing breast implant illness, putting your health and your risk at life, because we all know that the heightened immune system, um, just has a whole <laughs> cascade of, of of detrimental effects from it. So one is like, why is this not being communicated better? Um, mm-hmm. And two, you know, what are alternatives? Um, and what are also use case scenarios? Because some is more for aesthetics, but I'm sure there's mm-hmm. other reasons why women decide to have these surgeries, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, to answer your first question, why isn't this more public? I would say now more than ever, there is a very... Um, a uh, large and vocal community of advocates. Um, there is a breast implant illness um, foundation. Um, there are surgeons that are starting to finally come around and, and speak more publicly about this, which I, I fully and strongly support my colleagues in doing that. And I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in addition to the advocacy groups, the media has picked up on it. And there's books out there. Um, I, I've, I've been in contact with an amazing psychotherapist. Uh, her name is Amanda Savage brown published a book recently called Busting Free, which is all about the psychotherapy approach to getting ready to do x surgery. So there's, there's definitely more information out there and more people that are picking up on this, um, so much so that the FDA had hearings uh, about four or five years ago. Um, to revisit the issue of breast implant illness. Um, And it's not just breast implant illness that's the problem. It's also a rare type of cancer that's associated with implants. And that's a known number. There's no question um, that one in 3,000 women that get a certain type of implant are likely to have a a very rare type of cancer associated with the implant. So um, I would say even if it's not as popular as it should be, I mean, my my personal preference would be that that this be made a known women's public health issue because it's it's shocking that it's still the number two most common plastic surgery procedure um, liposuction is overtaking as number one i hear you just saying like why is this more common but i would say at the same time it's actually more discussed and popular than than ever um in the just to give you like the context of the history in the 90s when the moratorium happened uh, basically all implants stopped that's implants that are filled with saline and implants that are filled with silicone Now, it's a little bit of a misnomer because whether the implant is filled with saline or silicone, it still has a silicone shell. So the body's still reacting to it the same way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of questions about, well, the fluid that's in the saline implant, what happens to that over time? It's basically just sitting at body temperature over time. Is it growing things? What's, you know, what's happening? The moratorium was placed on the implants and all implant surgery stopped. Mm -hmm. And then, um, a ton of research was done. Um, you know you could you could ask questions about how was it funded and who and and what and what were the results. But basically, to say that there is no association between breast implants and autoimmune illness, and um it's back on. and so so they were put back on the market. Um, i can that, guess you
1: yeah, funded that <laughs> yeah yeah and it's, it's and,
0: and you know it's it's critical thinking and, and asking more and following the money is, is always helpful a lot um, of money
1: yeah <laughs>
0: yeah and and the validity of the studies you know like there's there's always um people with good intentions doing that kind of research trying to trying to show validity but but it it, it is a it is a problem to say that um you know it, it wasn't unbiased now fast forward to today, um it's just not possible to 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 quiet the storm of of patients that are angry, um, that deserve representation, that deserve to be heard, and that deserve really an alternative. Like uh, and that's been a large part of my mission, which is to say, I mean, there's going to be surgeons putting them in. there's going to be surgeons taking them out. And just it's just opposite sides of the same equation. The equation itself needs to change, which is what I've been trying to focus on, say, let's come with a better alternative and really focus on that, which is why, mentioned before i focus on fat grafting
1: can we dig into fat grafting um and sure. some people like fat what what are you doing with fat and they're yeah. like oh is this an alternative to liposuction like <laughs> so yeah. can you share a bit about what is fat grafting and what what's happening sure.
0: so fat as a regenerative um medium as a, as a as a tissue from the body has has been known for 50 plus years um Fat is rich in stem cells, um, both from the fat, but also from the blood. And it can be used as a filler material because fat once grafted. So when you take tissue from one part of the body Mm -hmm. and put it somewhere else, the body's very intelligent. It it surrounds it with all these growth factors and it starts to grow. Literally, it's like taking seeds and putting them somewhere else. And -hmm. so that tissue is going to grow and it takes hold wherever you place it. So that makes it a very useful material for, for filling and creating shape. Um, since the research in fat grafting has evolved over the past 30 years, it's not just a useful filler, it can be used for its stem cell regenerative potential too, which is which is really powerful. Interesting. And so, yeah, some of the early uses of fat grafting were actually in patients with burns and radiation therapy after breast cancer. What was noticed is when the fat was put under the skin, that the skin actually softened and regenerated. Because people who've had burns or radiation therapy. Um, to, for, for different parts of the body, the skin gets really damaged. It gets really hard and really stiff. And so the mm-hmm. skin becomes more soft and supple with that kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so fat grafting, what it is, is it involves removing fat from one part of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, it's processed and purified. And then uh, in a sterile container, reinjecting it into a location so you can either uh, fill and create volume or for whatever regenerative purpose you want to use it for. Mm-hmm. The way that I use that is I have a, a specific protocol and technique where I try and do everything as minimally invasively as possible. The majority of the surgery I do is on patients who are awake but comfortable. Oh, wow. and yeah, um and it's it's part of in keeping in mind that it's not just about the 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 surgery itself. It's about the entire experience trying to be as comfortable. Um, a, making the recovery as swift as possible because general anesthesia is really intense on the body. Going to sleep for a surgery is is, is quite the uh, quite the thing to recover from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so patients are generally awake. Um, I use a cocktail medications to help them feel relaxed and comfortable. Um, we uh, I then numb all the areas mm-hmm. with a medication that goes under the skin. So really, all you really feel is like pressure and vibration. Mm-hmm. The fat then gets removed. I have a special way of processing it.
1: Where does the fat get removed from? Is it typically like the abdomen or the, the bum, like the buttocks, or, or where does it get it, removed it, it,
0: it can be most, um, just about anywhere in the body. Um, okay. Everywhere in the body, there's a healthy layer of fat that's around, like rendered skin on top of the muscle. The most common areas are around the abdomen, Yeah. the arms, and like the inner thigh area.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so you and, just like extract. Yeah. like how, how can you visualize it? Yeah. Like, with the syringe extracting, sure, yeah,
0: it's it's technically a type. It's a type of liposuction. I use a, a variety of like sort of newer cutting edge tools that allow. Um, I do it all through a, basically like a millimeter size entry point, uh-huh. just a little dot, and so the tool goes inside, and it's a combination of vibration and suction that will break up the fat, and it's like it's like taking little tiny little bits of fat over a large areas. It's literally, it's sculpting. Picture mm-hmm. like modern day. Um, you know, there's, yeah, there's a sculpture I, so you're, you're you know, I'm just taking little bits of fat from certain areas, so I'm trying oh. to um, uh, uh, leave uh, to create an aesthetic result from the area where I'm taking the fat, so it looks looks great and toned. Um, and with the fat that I'm removing, it's taking out little tiny microscopic bits of fat over a large area. Mm-hmm. And that fat then gets uh, collected into a container. And I have a special way of processing the fat, which enhances the stem cell. So historically, part of the issue with doing a fat graft is that not all of the fat that gets transferred survives. So a lot of people, um, traditionally maybe who have had fat transfer aren't, weren't as satisfied or sort of a myth that got propagated it was like, Oh, it doesn't last. It doesn't work. Well, that's if it's not um, handled properly. And of, of course, not a hundred percent of it will survive, but there's certain things you can do that can increase the survival rate to. Above 70%.
1: And so then uh, you, you inject it then uh, into the breasts um, and then yeah. it has the stem cell um, benefit because you've treated it basically. Um, and yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and to answer one of the, um, the one of the questions or pointing at earlier about, is this is only aesthetic or is it reconstructive? Yeah. Um, it's for, for both purposes. So originally fat crafting for the breast was more so for patients who've had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, as a means to reconstruct part of the breast. And anatomically, it makes a lot of sense because the the breast tissue or the breast is comprised of glands, so the the part that produces milk, Mm -hmm. as well as fat. So it's a more, what I like to think is an anatomically appropriate um, reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And that can be done either as an aesthetic tool for uh, what we call primary augmentation, so increasing the size of the breast um, without any history of cancer, just wanting a, a larger, fuller breast, Mm-hmm. or for the purposes of uh, reconstructing your breast after cancer and restoring that femininity
1: and you touched before that you have a spiritual practice where you're quite spiritual as well can you share a bit more about that and, and how you? yeah it?
0: yeah this is this has been um i would say um professionally a really rewarding aspect of of my career in the past few years which is finding a way to infuse all these different parts of my life uh, into the work that i do every day so I view surgery as a ceremony. Surgery is an opportunity to undergo a major transformation of the mind and body. And historically, I think that's really what the process of medicine and and surgery was. And there's a lot of similarities between surgery and ceremony. The first is that there's an altered state of consciousness or elevated state of consciousness, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's through medication or or other kind of ceremonial experiences. The second is that there's a strong desire to undergo transformation of the mind and body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in traditional ceremony, work, it's more the mind and, and traditional surgery is more the body, but it's both like it's a strong physical experience that people go through. Mm-hmm. And the last is that you you have to undergo the journey. There's no question. Like if you're going to, if you want to have a transformation, you got to have a surgery. If you want, mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to go through it. So um they're actually very similar in that way. And when I had that uh, realization, I, I started to lean into it more uh, to see that there's really an opportunity here to create this this transformation for patients. And I, I think it's. Um, I think medicine and surgery has sort of drifted away from that uh, over time. It's become less spiritual, less less about that transform- transformative process and more about, you know, we're in a hospital. You guys can, you know, like this is a very sort of sterile, um, closed container. And and it's interesting. I just got back from, a trip from Egypt where I was just like witnessing all these different medical hieroglyphs and hearing these stories and, and just seeing how much ceremony there was in the process yeah. of treating patients yeah. while, while respecting the actual biology and medicine. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's still the same thing. It's still the same thing. We, we still wash our hands a certain ways. We, we still wear a certain ceremonial clothing. The patient still undergoes a the process. They fast before the procedure, you know? So yeah. it's, it's an interesting link that's there, but I don't think patients have been given the opportunity to use this very special, precious, maybe once in a lifetime moment mm-hmm. to have a transformational shift. Um, so what i have focused in my practice and trying to bring in that spiritual element is to create an opportunity for patients to to undergo that process. So it's not just about the surgery, it's about the intention they set beforehand. Um, in, in some settings, they could work with a, either a therapist or a guide beforehand to really like hone in on what it is that they want to achieve and mm-hmm. afterwards to have this integration pathway. The surgery itself is very interesting to me because I because I do the procedure awake, um, I use a special co- um combination of medications that creates the opportunity for patients to undergo this change. Mm-hmm. And that medication is primarily ketamine. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before, but um, yes. ketamine is a medical anesthetic that's been around for a long time. Yes, yeah. Um, but only recently, I'd say in the past, um, I don't know, decade or so, it's become getting popularity as more um, in the in the psychotherapy world as a treatment for depression and anxiety. Yeah. The real interesting thing about ketamine is that it is a very useful anesthetic for patients who are undergoing procedures while awake. Mm-hmm. It creates a state of neuroplasticity where you can really be guided through an experience and have a realignment in terms of how you view yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it's
0: very gentle on the body, um, meaning from, from the physiology, it doesn't really um, do. Um, it's not dangerous for the heart rate or the breathing. So, so it, it creates a much lighter anesthetic, and you need less medication. So, I've had uh, patients go through this experience where they have almost no. They don't really need pain pain medication afterwards. Mm-hmm. um and their their entire surgery process is, is just like it really is like a ceremony and i get to 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 hold the space for them and guide them through that and what mm-hmm. i've noticed afterwards yeah it's 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 uh, it's been some of the most rewarding experiences i've ever had professionally
1: that's really exciting i've had um several guests on in different relations with ketamine assisted therapy so roots to thrive dr pamela Crisco. Mm. brings um people uh, do you know her
0: yeah I know her. I just saw her recently at the uh the math conference in Denver Are
1: you were there in Denver I had a few yeah, friends yeah, been there as well yes yeah, so a few yeah, of my podcast yeah, yeah. guests have been there as, as well yeah. Molly she's, Marie, she's, so.
0: she's she's amazing she's uh she's a big inspiration um the, the way that she does her work
1: yeah. it's phenomenal Yeah. So I had her on and then recently Dr. Kat Meyer who was also mm. in Denver <laughs> she was on yeah, as well and yeah. she does for sex th- uh, therapy uh, ketamine assisted yeah. therapy as well um, yeah, and then, I,
0: I, yeah, she's she's also been really inspirational. Talking to her about the way that she cares uh, for her patients and giving me some great ideas on how to integrate the the best kind of psychotherapy before and after procedures. So,
1: which is a, a so beautiful. Of them, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I just want to say a lot. A lot of really talented uh, people working in the space, and I'm 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 grateful to all of them for the inspiration.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so beautiful to have that that built network, and I really like your idea of it as a ceremonial procedure because it is transformational. And I think that it's probably just as important to do that mental work and piece around it as well, because what would you say are the biggest drivers for people from a more aesthetic thing? Is it coming from a place of lack and lack of self-worth and unhappiness with self? And like, does it really, is it really solved then by having the procedure or like, how do you help patients decide, is this the right choice for them? And what is that? mental piece if you will the psychological piece that you recommend that they do before and then for the integration after
0: i always come from from a place of non-judgment you know that no matter why somebody is coming in for consultation um it, it doesn't their their desire and um to want to want to undergo a transformation
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, is where we start and then i, I screen patients you know i i say no a lot i probably say no I'd say maybe about 60 to 70% of the time for consultations, which I, I think is pretty high.
1: Yeah, um, sounds like
0: <laughs> but yeah, but it, not but it's not very Yeah, but it's, it's really important. Um, I think it would be a disservice to my patients as well as to myself if I was just saying yes to every person that walked uh, into my office. And so certain things that I screen for is trying to get an understanding of why somebody's wanting to make a change. And there are definitely certain things that I look out for. Um, but most importantly, if I'm getting the impression that um, uh, somebody's looking for an outcome that I can't, I don't think I can achieve either physically or a mental state I can help them get to through the procedure, um, it's just not the right fit. Um, that being said, just about everybody, or I'd say the majority of patients that are under looking to undergo this physical change, there is the association of how they view their body. And we all have that. So we all wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and try and figure out what, what's going to happen in the day. And like, what do we what do we need to do? How do we need to look? Um, and that, and that does come from a place of, I think, scarcity in the way that we view ourselves and a place of lack, um, but ho- holding that and, and, and an awareness of that and, and knowing that ultimately what my goal is to help people feel in alignment with who they are as much as possible so they can thrive every day. Um, I see it as sort of like a, an alignment of the spirit and the body. Um, so if you look in the mirror and you feel more confident and you're happy, you, you feel more alive to sort of sort of emboldened to see who you see in the mirror and you're like ready to go after the day. I think that's a success. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, keeping in mind, I, I also say, you know, like aesthetic surgery um, is is not something that anybody truly needs. It's more of a want. And so really reassess the risks and benefits of any procedure to understand that shift that you're going to go through. It's important to have just a very, very no frills conversation during a consultation about what what's what what to expect. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, yeah because um i have a few friends who've had um procedures done different types of procedures as well um particularly after having kids breastfeeding etc they're like you know in the bikini things don't look as good as they used to and i should do something um so i think that there are potentially you know that bucket of sort of mothers that just don't feel like how they used to if if they were breastfeeding for example um Mm -hmm. Is it possible with the procedure, with the fat grafting that you do, for to still like breastfeed and everything after? So, is it yes yeah. particular ages? Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. So, all the tools I use are blunt, meaning there's no sharp instruments that um, affect or damage any of the breast glands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, not everybody. So, the, an important thing to say there is: not everybody has the ability to breastfeed at baseline,
1: mm-hmm. so it doesn't
0: impact the ability to breastfeed um, mm-hmm. because there's no there's no cutting of tissues. I'm not removing any glands. I'm just gently placing the fat around. The breast gland with a blunt instrument so there's no sharp cutting yeah. um, another tool that I use uh, uh, allows tightening of the skin to raise and sort of elevate the breast tissue so it's like a, almost like a scarless way to, to do a breast lift um, yeah but both both of those tools are not sharp they don't damage the breast glands.
1: Yeah, because I mean, especially as you know, I have a goal. I'm I'm biologically 26, so I'm 15 years younger. Working to reverse that yeah. even further, yeah. and to 100, 150, maybe even 200. Who knows? Like as as yeah. things are progressing, um, and obviously we want to represent how we feel inside, also outside, right? And so I think support like that for those who choose to, right? So again, I'm no judgment, and I think it's always mm-hmm. a question like, where is it coming from? Make sure it's coming from the right place. Um, um, but I think that it's beautiful to have different options as well. What are some of the biggest myths you hear about plastic surgery?
0: There's some industry specific myths, meaning like specific to certain procedures about things you can and can't do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but as a, as a whole, um, I would say one of the myths is just about the incidence of plastic surgery, meaning how often people are getting procedures. Um, and just some of the things we see. So something I see a lot is, you know, there, there's there's certainly a lot of um, thoughts about it in the media and judgment and how, how people think about it. But the truth is that, you know, a lot of people get procedures and you often wouldn't know or notice it just because um, if it's done well, it should just look like a natural um,
1: Enhancement. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Like my, the biggest compliment I can hear from my patients, like, oh, it looks like you've been working out or something different about you. I can't quite tell. It's not like, did you get work done? I know. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think there's definitely a myth there. And I think in general, normalizing the conversation about our bodies and how we treat them and what we do to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think is, would be very helpful. And again, from a place of non- non-judgment, non I, I joke with one of my friends saying, you know, like we, we are just these avatars that we do things to, you know, whether it's <laughs> like dyeing our hair or you're changing the way we look or putting on different clothing. Um, obviously plastic surgery or undergoing surgical procedure is way more intense than that, but it's still on that spectrum of things that we do to our body to help us mm-hmm. feel more in alignment with who we are. So I think one of the, one of the misses, it, things I've seen is just like, I don't know if, if people necessarily realize that how much um, um, this industry uh, impacts people and, and how much surgery people are actually having, whether it's a, a minor procedure um, or all the way to like a, a big uh, procedure that involves general anesthesia. One of the more common myths that I hear specifically to the work that I do is that doing liposuction somewhere in the body causes fat to reappear elsewhere. And I hear that all the time, and it's not actually true. Fat, fat is not that intelligent. at all the body stores and, and puts that wherever it needs to, however it needs to. Yeah. And I always say, that's fat's not really a problem. It's just you know, some people, if it's not where you want it to be, it's it's not. You know, you can be less happy about it. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the, one myth I see pretty commonly is like, oh, if you you remove that from somewhere, is it going to reappear somewhere else?
1: (laughs) That sounds interesting. I want to ask a question around, um, white fat versus brown fat, right? So we all Mm. want more brown fats and white fats. Um, does that have any role with the fat grafting that you're doing?
0: So brown fat in adults, um, is more of like a, um what i'll call like a histological phenomenon meaning it's like very very small amounts. it's it's mostly um small babies that have large stores of brown fat that you could probably isolate from somewhere um i don't still have it but um it's not necessarily like when i'm doing my procedure i can differentiate between brown and, uh, between mm-hmm. adipose fat uh, that uh, uh brown and, and white fat mm-hmm. um but brown fat is fascinating. I mean, it's full of all this, all these other, um, uh, things that make it just that much more active. It helps keep you warm. It's just like the metabolism of, of what's happening in brown fat is just very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have never, uh, looked specifically though at what the difference in fat retention would be if you're t- harvesting fat, um, that has a higher incidence of, of brown fat. We do know that fat has a higher retention. If it is mixed with stem cells and if you um, purify certain stem cells from fat, and it is possible that maybe some of those stem cells are more likely to come from brown fat areas, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know for sure.
1: Because I yeah. think I know in the biohacking community, it's like if doing the you know cold plunges, cold water yeah. therapy, even having like ice packs on the back of your shoulders. I did that for a while, mm-hmm. just walking before bed, things like yeah. that to promote brown fat. Um yeah. which the fat, by the way, if people are like hear fat, they always think negative, but the brown fat is the one we want. So you're saying it has yeah, a we want. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, we want it. I mean, it's it's full of mitochondria. It really helps stimulate the energy centers of the body. Um and, and exactly right. That's what that's what I've heard and read as well, is that um that kind of cold shock therapy um uh, trips trips the the biology of those fat cells to to over uh, to to increase production
1: i want to touch on a few things stem cell research um what are some new evolutions in stem cell research that you find most exciting
0: you know stem cells have been around for a long time but now we're finally i think starting to hit more and more mainstream use of stem cells mm-hmm. by um there, there's the ethical approach, the legal approach, and, and then there's like the actual, what can stem cells do? So um, ethically, legally, the FDA, at least in the US, only allows stem cells to be used in the context of a clinical trial for very specific applications, uh, which are usually having to do with blood-related illnesses, whether that's cancer or uh, immune system dysfunction. Um, But that's um, just the tip of the iceberg. And the reality is that in other countries and even around the U.S., stem cells are used very commonly for different types of procedures. Um, Stem cells can be harvested just about anywhere in the body. And um, there's evidence that basically the earlier you're catching the stem cell and its um, origination, so if you catch either fetal stem cells, um, so from the placenta or from this uh, umbilical cord, those are the richest, most um, valuable in terms of what they can do. And in the past decade or so, we've learned that it's not even just the stem cells so much. It's about what the stem cells produce. And um, I'm sure you, you do live in this world, so you know all about it, which is the exosomes. Yeah,
1: share with my audience. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah. is <laughs>
0: so, yes, yeah, so the exosomes are the little bits of genetic material and, and packets of information that stem cells secrete that are the effector, meaning like like the actually what the stem cells are doing. So stem cells are the um, like the puppet masters, the exosomes are the puppet strings that that are moving the puppet. They're really having the effect on the body. And in the past um, five, 10 years, there's just been an explosion in stem cell research and the production of these exosomes that can then be injected back into the body, which in some ways is safer than stem cells because stem cells are biologic material. Anytime you're injecting biological material in the body, there's a whole bunch of um, uh, things that, that, could, that could go wrong. So injecting exosomes is technically safer um, and you're still getting the benefit um, so and then even a step further has been this concept of uh, something called yamanaka factors which is a, a researcher um, who identifies like certain genetic codes that come from stem cells that can really rewire and reprogram the body to act um, and and, and to, to, to turn on all these genetic programs that make the body younger so exosomes specifically are I'm very excited about um I guess I indirectly use it for my fat transfers. Um, It's not technically like a stem cell product, but the way that I harvest and process the fat is that there's a special way to harvest the exosomes Mm -hmm. produced by the fat cells that I harvest. Mm -hmm. And it's all from the same patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be re-injected back into the patient. So that's increasing the survival of of the fat.
1: Super exciting. I want to touch on something you mentioned in passing, your trip to Egypt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It sounds like it was amazing. Can you tell us a bit? what you were doing sure. there, what was Yeah, happening?
0: Egypt really is like, a um, you know, before going, I kept hearing from people like, oh, it's like a portal, it's like a corridor. It's, it's mm-hmm. just like a transformative place. I went with a group of friends on this um, incredible trip down the Nile where every day we would stop at different temples and have these experiences. Um, and just really learning not just about the culture and history of Egypt, but this the sort of spiritual past of, of what would happen there. And one particular experience really stood out for me, which was, um, and you'll, you'll find this really interesting, which is the Temple of Horus. So Horus um, was an Egyptian god who uh, was associated with health and longevity and healing. And if you've ever looked at, um, there's an interesting sort of like medical trivia fact here, which is if you've ever looked at Rx, the um which is prescription, prescription. Mm-hmm. that comes from the symbol of the eye of horus the mm-hmm. r and the x is literally um you, you may have seen it in the egyptian hieroglyphs before it's just the eye with the r through it oh. which is which is known as a symbol of the eye of horus and visiting that temple was just um I'm, I'm just kind of like a geek and a nerd for this kind of stuff. So like seeing all these medical hieroglyphs that had to do with like surgical procedures and doses of medications and things like that. I was like, you know, this is this is like it's like the equivalent of walking into an Egyptian hospital three thousand years ago and like sifting through some files, it's like seeing these these glyphs. Yeah, and and it, and it just kind of brought back that concept of surgery and ceremony even more, which is there, no matter how far we've gone from the spiritual side of it, there's still the ceremonial aspect of what we do. And I heard that great quote uh, from a friend the other day, which, which has been ingrained in me, which is, what is a protocol but a process? What is a process but a ritual? And what is a ritual but a ceremony? And that's a thought I had when I was standing there at the temple. I was like, I mean, whether it's hieroglyphs on a wall that look that are showing medications and surgical instruments or me in the operating room holding it, there's a common thread that goes through all of that. You know, yeah. I wash my hands a certain way before a procedure. I put my cap and gown on the same way. Yeah. I prep the patient the same way. All of that is a protocol process, yeah. ritual, and ceremony. Sure. And so, yeah, and so a lot, a lot of my experience in Egypt was was just um, just being witness to that. And it was incredible.
1: It's amazing. I've been hearing from different sources. Um, was listening also to Aubrey Marcus, who had this incredible trip. I don't know if you're familiar we, with it.
0: We, we, we were on the same trip.
1: You were on the same trip. Yeah. I listened yeah, to his interview. <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah. yeah, I'm in the process of listening to his podcast interview. Yeah. And...
0: I I, w- I witnessed some of that stuff, man. It was, wow. it was uh, a, a lot I of people had experiences. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and I'm, uh, Matthias de Stefano is speaking in London in uh-huh. a few weeks' time. So I'm going to go, go to his workshop there as well. Um, yeah, be, um, it was
0: yeah. phenomenal. I mean, I witnessed him channeling and, and um, uh, and, and sharing, sharing his experience. And it was, it was powerful. I mean, there's, there's just so much we don't understand. If we just push the boundaries of what we're willing to accept as, as a real understanding just a whole nother world of possibilities opens up, where I think you can really just be in question and in inquiry of like, What what else is out there?
1: I can't believe that you have were with them and I'm listening to the podcast. Yeah, (laughs)
0: Yeah. see, there you go. Cool, cool (laughs) synchronicity.
1: The universe just brings these things together. It's really incredible. So the perfect timing that we're speaking right now is also when we're offline after, I have a few questions for you. (laughs) Sure, sure. Dr. John, what is the future of plastic surgery? Would you say?
0: This is my hope for the future of plastic surgery. I don't know if it's actually where the industry is headed, but um, I would hope... That patients and surgeons come together to help everybody, uh, whether it's through procedures, technology, um, every, every modality we have available to help people truly feel that the, the source of their own creativity and divinity within. Um, yeah. I think that's ultimately, ultimately the goal of any, of any of these procedures, it's being able to wake up and feel as aligned, as empowered, um, in connection with what you see your body body is. And, um, a more, I think, industry kind of like standpoint would be something like um, everything is is just heading towards being minimally invasive, so less and less invasive, mm-hmm. less and less general anesthesia. I don't think it's necessary or safe for patients to have to go to sleep for these big procedures anymore, or, or even small ones. Yeah. I think that's more of a thing of the past and surgeon surgeon's preference. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, doing procedures awake, less invasive. And more of a focus on um, what happens before and after surgery. So um, all of these amazing uh, longevity biohacking tools that we have available mm-hmm. to us, as well as bringing on other allied health professionals, um, whether it's therapists, to really create this arc of transformation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think there's just going to be more and more emphasis on that. It's no longer just about the knife in the operating room.
1: Yeah, and see you later. Good luck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Thankfully. exactly. Thankfully That's as that. well. Yeah. What yeah. are some of your favorite longevity and biohacking integration tools? I've gone
0: down this rabbit hole. I, I started a company called Regenerate, RX Generate with uh, with uh, a nurse colleague of mine. Uh-huh. And we we went down the deep end looking for all the different tools and hacks, and I tried them all. I was wearing like six different gadgets at some point, monitoring my sleep and like got a few of those these. myself. Yeah, <laughs> I got my ordering, my watch. Oh, I was yeah. doing different infusions and IVs and things like that. And um, you know, it's it's I would say that. Um, keeping it simple and going back to the basics has been the best thing for me. And that has been three things um, or, or basically two ways of thinking about it. It's like, what am I putting in my body and what am I doing to my body? Um, so um, really opt and in and every one of those categories is optimizing for sleep. So it's the number one thing I do. Uh, it's the number one thing most people spend their time doing over a lifetime. So as as far as best bang for your, for your buck and time spent, if you yeah. can improve your sleep quality and it's so high on the chain of things that happen in the body from restoration to okay. mood and all, all the things so improving and, sleep- and what
1: are your hacks yeah so we're going to dig into okay. that. what is that what are you doing yeah, sure. the biggest game changes for you what did you start yeah talking? so
0: so so it's, it's always the same thing it's what am i doing to my body what am I putting in my body so before bed, i like to take magnesium um usually magnesium dysglycinate i know there's a bunch of different kinds there's also um, i forget the yeah i forget the brand but it's got like all, all seven it, different pure encapsulations of Think that it's might a be white I
1: with the blue, it's a yeah, white yeah. That's the, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so I, take, I, take,
0: I take that one before bed. Uh-huh. Um, so that's what I'm putting in my body. I usually, um, um I have so it's also about what you're not putting in your body. I try to avoid eating about three hours before bed, um, mm-hmm. try to go to bed on a relatively empty stomach, um, avoid uh, any bright light, and I try and keep the light down low um lately i've been seeing some interesting research about how truly sensitive the eyes are to light even when your eyes are closed so i'd like to watch if on a day that i'm not working too late i like to try and catch the sunset mm-hmm. and that just creates this interesting sort of optic, neurological too. yeah you, you increase melatonin production i don't take melatonin before bed um there was a while i was taking valerian root and some other things i like to be really comfortable when i sleep i was using the eight sleep for a while to try and cool down my mattress but i found ultimately just Just like setting the temperature properly in the room, I will always keep a hand or a foot outside of the 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 covers, which is kind of a funny thing because it's yeah, it's it's not just temperature measurement, but it's also um, your body's most efficient way of regulating your core body temperature is through your hands. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah, hands or
0: feet and your face because the, the the blood vessels are aligned in a certain way that allows them to cool off quickly. It's like literally the same concept is an air conditioner. So I'll usually keep a, a few limbs out because um, that I know when I'm sleeping helps me regulate. I also try not to do any like kind of crazy exercise three hours before bed. Um, yeah. again, I don't always, I, if, it, if the decision decision to exercise or not, I prefer to exercise. So, um, yeah. I'm not, uh, um, and then in, in, in the mornings what I find is actually really helpful, um, which sets the rhythm for how I get tired at night is just getting a lot of bright light during the day. And that's, yeah. that's been really helpful. And I've heard a number of people speak on this. And I think Huberman um popularized a lot, but I, and I've heard it from a lot of other places um, that, that I've noticed is really thing. I, I like literally wake up and I go outside and sit on my balcony and just, just take in the nature and just get as much sunlight as I can in my eyes. Um, i also try to avoid coffee after three PM.
1: Yeah, so that's number one with sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <next one>.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> what yeah.
0: So um, fasting has been incredibly helpful. Um, I try not to go overboard with fasting. I've noticed, um, you know, like just just being really concerned about eating all the time can create its own level of, of stress. But um, really simply, I try not to eat any major calories until about um, eleven or noon every day. Um, so I guess it's, you call that intermittent fasting and every two weeks I do a 24 hour fast. Mine's actually about to start oh,
1: um, a little
0: bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just follow the calendar every, every two weeks. It's a really helpful way. Um, psychologically it helps me reprogram my relationship with food it reminds me that being hungry is not the end of the world. Yeah. And it just, it just feels good to kind of get my body like just to, just to quiet the engine down a little bit, because it's yeah. really that we know that the metabolic, overfunction of the processes of the body is what contributes to a lot of the, the factors that that cause aging. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's really helpful too. Just to comment on that for people listening. So I've dug into intermittent fasting a lot and especially for women, it's mm. a lot, it can be detrimental. I think what I've found also with clients is that for men it's a lot easier to, you know, not have food until say midday and then have that afternoon eating window. For women, it can really cause dysregulation of hormones and have a lot of knock-on effects as well. So Dr. Sachin Panda is actually going to be coming on. He's the sort of researcher around circadian rhythms. Um, He even just says, you know, overnight having that 12 to 14 hour hours is enough to already see some of the benefits as well. And then doing the occasional 24-hour fast or 36-hour fast um, can be really Mm -hmm. beneficial. So just for women listening, take note. And then another thing I would just say to people listening this is assuming you are coming from a healthy baseline. You don't have a depletion in minerals, um vitamins, essential things as well. So some people who are like their health or immune system is like shot and then really bad when then they start fasting and they're they're causing huge adrenal fatigue. And um, you know I've gone the wrong way myself. So I'm speaking yeah. from experience. So, just if you're considering intermittent fasting, take note and also make sure that you have a really good baseline before you get into a regular practice. So, so I just wanted to caveat that point. No,
0: I, I, that's a great reminder.
1: Thank you for saying that. So the intermittent fasting, we've got sleep.
0: <laughs> oh, and cold plunge, uh, cold and hot. So I recently installed, I, it's my favorite part of my house. Uh, it's, it's out in nature and there's um, an outdoor sauna that gets really hot. It gets up to about 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Wow. And then, and then the and then the cold plunge. And I love to do that as often as I can. Usually, I'll do this. Like I, you know, think if you dig it far enough into this literature, there or, or like what people are saying, everybody's got an opinion. I don't know if there's like a hard set fact anywhere, but yeah. we do know that the alternation, the, the delta, so the difference between the hot and cold, is what is what's important in allowing your yep. body to just heat up on its own. Um, but yeah. I found cold punch to be really helpful. Um, just d- doing doing hard, hard and comfortable stuff consciously, I think, is is kind of the the tagline. So whether it's yeah. strength training and lifting weights and building m- muscle mass, which we also know is very healthy and important uh, into for, for longevity and into as we age, mm-hmm. but also just that kind of cold exposure is, is, has been really helpful.
1: Yeah, and the combination of both as well. And like, funnily enough, my German grandmother used to go um, in Germany. You have these like wellness. I guess you could call it a spa. It was seen more as like a medical thing. And like literally, the insurance companies used to pay for patients in Germany to go to this. And she used to go like six weeks a year, (laughs) paid by her insurance company. That's amazing. Yeah. And when we were little, we used to kind of go and you can visit these places. And they would literally they have these. If you imagine like almost like a snake, it was like super hot water you would stand in, and then you'd walk into the really cold water and, and move it around. And they have all these different saunas with different temperatures, and then the cold plunge as well. So this is all like this biohacking thing, but it actually has been around for like hundreds, yeah. if not hundreds, thousands of years, right? So, yeah,
0: so totally. As I just look back on it. I'm Russian. And I, my my parents and grandparents had a what was called the banya, just like a sauna that you go sit yeah. in. And like, they didn't call it biohacking, it was just living.
1: It was so, a banya. Yeah. I'm actually going yeah. to the Russian yeah. banya in London tomorrow. So, oh, awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: going to be fun. Yeah, exactly. What I'd love to uh, finish up with is if you could live to 150 years old, Dr. John, with excellent health, how would you spend your time?
0: I plan on it, by the way. I'm going to make it out. Yeah, I'll see you there too.
1: (laughs) See you Um, in the (laughs) banya.
0: I would say in the company of friends, family, loved ones, um, in celebration, in pursuit of joy and learning. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, if I could live to, or when I live to 150, I think it'd be the coolest, coolest thing to just keep learning and going deeper. I'd get, maybe I'd, I don't know, go, go get different degrees and try and find all the ways that they combine together to just create total alchemy of, of things we don't know yet.
1: So exciting. Yeah, but,
0: but, but most important, yeah, most importantly, I think it's the relationships that I have in my life that I have created the most joy and, and meaning. And I would, I would focus on those.
1: Yeah. I mean, Harvard's Harvard's longest running study or the world's longest running study from 1938, right? That like shows for longevity and happiness and longevity is about human connection. Mm-hmm. And I think the world really needs to reshift post COVID, right? To remembering what connection is. And I almost, you know, fear, and I try, my kids are a bit young, they're seven and nine, but like letting them know that like these devices and just sending a WhatsApp to somebody is not really human connection. Um, And when they hear the stories of like, back in the old days, you would write somebody a letter, like, I'm going to come visit. And then you'd visit for a few days and you sat around without devices and had conversations. It's like for them, they're like, what? Like, well, what did they do? Oh my yeah. <laughs> it's like they yeah, were speaking yeah. to each other, enjoying each other's company. So let's see where the world brings us. But I totally agree with connection yeah. and, and experiences, right? So like your Egyptian experience, right? Just these beautiful things the world has to offer that we just need to spend time Uncovering and to be able to do that with friends and family and loved ones is amazing. So what excites you most about the future of health longevity in the coming years and beyond? It's
0: two things. Artificial intelligence mm-hmm. as a tool to enhance health practitioners. And the second thing is the proliferation of uh, medicine as a as a tool to help people who are already well rather than focused on just, just sick. Or mm-hmm. unwell, and that's not to say that people who who are sick and don't need help or uh, don't need help, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But I think for the first time, we're able to democratize information to make healthcare more accessible for everybody, and that's both for people who are unwell and well to just try and optimize everybody's health. Yeah. And on the artificial intelligence side, I'm really interested. In that I, I work um, in, uh, and advise for a few companies in the healthcare artificial intelligence space, and I and I really think. Just how, you know, maybe a, a couple hundred years ago, before, before x-rays or, or medical imaging was used, like a doctor with a, an x-ray or a CAT scan was not nearly as good as one, or sorry, a doctor without that kind of technology was not as good as one with, it'll, it'll be the same thing as artificial intelligence. You know, having that super, um, super-powered approach um, to knowledge, um, uh, information, We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. just, we'll just make healthcare more accessible and, and more efficient for everybody.
1: I'd love to ask a follow-on question on that. Yeah. So in what ways or what applications of AI in medicine do you find it helpful? Because there is like IBM's Watson, which reads all the yeah. medical research, because not like a one human can read all research that comes yeah. out. So it's like up to date. So that's kind of one application versus um, I've had a recorded conversation it hasn't been published le- uh, yet about <laughs> the MRI scanning, right? And like Mm -hmm. preempting, like early detection of potential cancer and things like that as well. So what area of AI application in medicine um, do you think is most exciting?
0: Oh, that's a great, we could do a whole other podcast on that. (laughs) uh, So um, so I started an AI company in Montreal called uh, Imagia about seven years ago that was focused on applications of AI and medical imaging. Uh Um, I think every facet um, has, has some potential, but what, what I'm most excited about is um, the application of AI and surgical robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot that happens in surgery um, and that could be improved. So I advised a company called Neuralink, which um, uh, is involved in um, creating an implant for uh, a brain-computer interface. and Muscarine? Um, yeah, yeah, and the, and the amount of... Um, the amount that we're learning and able to glean from being able to literally gather information from the brain,
1: mm-hmm. as
0: well as the surgical robot that is mostly guided by AI, is just incredible. And so there's there's a number of companies that are working in that space that I, I think is, is fascinating. Yeah. Um, apart from that, um, DeepMind,
1: mm-hmm. a
0: company based out of London, um, okay. um yeah and, and um they have a um, sister like a, a related company with the same founder that is focused on protein folding which i think is going to be incredibly fascinating for drug synthesis where you can have you know part of the problem with drugs and, and pharmaceuticals now uh, today is that you know you're getting such a small amount of the bioavailable molecule meaning you t- you take like, what thing do you buy that you buy 100% of that maybe 10 to 15% is actually doing the only thing it's supposed to do? Like, not very often. And that's that's the case with a lot of drugs, whether it's the body's breaking it down or it's not working way it like it's supposed to. So with with uh, AI approaches and pharmaceuticals, um, there's, a, there's the opportunity to develop extremely, extremely um, uh, uh, tailored molecules that can act specifically on certain parts of the body designed just for you based on your genetics. And I, I think that's that's really powerful. So I would say... Um, it's giving you a big answer, but I'm excited from the really big robotic stuff to the really tiny molecules. Um, it's like it's, it's the extremes that I find pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. I know a lot of people always are fearful when they hear AI, but I do think there are a lot of positive benefits as well. So it's finding yeah. that balance And yeah. it. That's yeah. another conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, the fear is certainly warranted and, I, and I'll be, um, um I definitely agree with you there, but there's also great benefit.
1: Yeah. As well. For my listeners interested in understanding more about plastic surgery and the work that you do, and it's particularly around fat grafting as an alternative, and also around breast implant illness, what is an online resource? um, Or you you mentioned obviously the book will will link that as well that you recommend they could start with.
0: I think um, it could be just as simple as uh, going on on. So there's a few places. Um, If you just go on Google and type in breast implant illness and fat grafting, there's a ton of information that you can find. About problems with implants and and the opportunities of fat grafting, um, I I share regularly about these topics on my Instagram. Um, so that's at Dr K. So that's D R J O N dot K. Mm-hmm. Um, also on my website um, Aura Aesthetica. That's A U R A A E S T H I C A dot com. Aura Aesthetica.
1: And we'll link um, everything in the show notes for yeah. So don't worry. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Um, um, those are those are some of the best places. There's actually a few, there's going to be a few books and movies coming out on the topic of breast implant illness as well. So mm-hmm. um, there's, there's no shortage of information out there. Um, I do think that the book that I mentioned, Busting Free mm-hmm. by uh, um, Amanda Savage Brown, is also a great, great place um, to just get more context and
1: information. Beautiful. Do you yeah. have a final ask or recommendation or any parting thoughts or message for my audience today? It's a message of
0: gratitude, and just just, uh, you know every every day i'm I'm grateful for the work that I get to do. and and I hope that anybody listening um, uh, also can can find something to be grateful for and some aspect of your day because that that can be such a poor uh, source of of positive energy. Thank you for the work that you do and the, the guests <laughs> that you bring on and this opportunity to speak. i'm I'm so grateful.
1: Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for sharing your work. And I love the innovation that you're bringing across the field and the awareness and also your decision not to do the the typical breast implants when you were able to already foresee the risks and saving so many women's lives because of it. So thank you too. Thank you. Thank you so much.